Let's talk about anything other than politics, amen? Oh, and you know what? Jesus said the last will be first, and I'm so glad for the Cardinals. What a, I mean, I'm gonna talk about Jesus, but let's just, let's just be honest. Watching the Cardinals and talking about Jesus beats talking about politics, amen? Uh, and so here, here if you're new, uh, we're really honored to have you. Great guys in this room, guys all across their, their journey uh, in life and, and finding God and walking with God. And this is a highlight of my week. And I know for many of you men, it is the same. Uh, my name is Mark. It's a great, great honor to have you. And uh, it really is an honor to have this quality of men together. And so what we're gonna talk about is uh, something called identity. And uh, the way it works is on Sunday, I preach uh, what seems to be increasingly long sermons. Um, I get paid by the minute, I'm a union preacher, so I, I, I get paid well. And so we go through a long sermon, go through a book of the Bible on Sunday, and then I do a little pivot and a leadership talk for men on Wednesday night. We call it Real Men and simulcast it as well. And the goal is to help develop you men as, as leaders, because you've all got spheres of influence. And uh, what we're gonna talk about today is how not only you see God, but how you see yourself and how you see others. And I've been stressing in Romans, the, the first issues we gotta figure out is, okay, who is God and then who does God say that I am? And as we get into this, in the secular world, they'll talk about self-esteem, uh, they'll talk about self-actualization, they'll talk about positive self-image. Uh, when we're talking Christianity, we're talking about our identity. And I wrote a whole book on this, uh, who do you think you are and your identity in Christ. But it really is, if you were to identify a word that would explain you, so we'll do this in a moment. Uh, what word would you choose? I am blank. So just think about it for a moment. I am blank. You guys could throw the slide up. I am blank. If you're gonna fill that in to introduce or identify or typify or name you, this is the participation portion of our time together. What words would you choose? Just one word. Son, Son that's a good one. Yes. Sinner. Pilgrim. <laughs> All right, you, your wife churned butter. That's awesome, okay. Uh, yeah. Believer, Believer what? New creation. Forgiven. Forgiven. Okay. What's that? Holy. Holy. I've met you, brother. That's not true. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that. I'm having fun with you. You got a theological degree. Yeah. So, okay. Anybody over here got a word? All these guys got words. Warrior. Warrior. Broken. Warrior? Broken. You guys need to hang out. He'll help you. Uh, <laughs> cover your six. Any other words you'd pick? Blessed. Blessed. What? Called. Called? Resurrected? I hope this isn't my resurrection body. By the way, you know, I, I'm gonna be tall, I'm gonna have bangs, I'm gonna play above the rim. I'm gonna eat nachos, it's gonna be amazing. Uh, any other word you'd pick? Love. Saved? Love. Adopted, loved? You guys are doing pretty good. Unworthy, Unworthy. okay. Transformed. What's that? Transformed. Transformed and loud. Um, so we're glad to have you. So th the issue is this, when we, when we think of who we are and how we identify ourselves, it has to be in light of who God ultimately says that we are. And so let me say this, uh, before we jump into the text, um, when you understand who you are, your identity, it's the one thing that changes everything because when you know who you are, then you know what to do, okay? This is why we tell a guy, you're a soldier. Okay, now he knows what to do. I got to fight. You're a dad. Okay, now I know what to do. I got to love that kid. You're a husband. Okay, now I know what to do. I need to love that woman. Oh, you're an employee. Okay, now I need to do my job. When you don't know what to do until you know who you are. 
And what men will tend to do, they'll tend to form their identity from their possessions, their performance, um, or their position. So we'll look at position first. Oftentimes we identify ourselves by our position. I was the firstborn, I was the middle child, I was the baby, I was mom's favorite, I was dad's favorite. It's a position that we hold, maybe in the company. I'm the president, I'm the CEO, I'm the intern. Um, it may be as well in the community. I'm a leader, I'm a coach, I'm a teacher. Oftentimes men will establish their identity based upon their position. And those things might explain you, but they don't define you. Number two, it's performance. Many men, their identity is based upon their performance. So you're in school, it's your grade point average. Maybe you get a little bit older, it's your competition in sports, in the marketplace or workplace, it's your job or role. And what I say is when it comes to the performance, guys start on the ball field and that's where all the competition is. Uh, and then it moves to the bedroom. This is your dating, relating and fornicating 20 something years. And then it becomes ultimately um, the boardroom and your billfold. So the performance shifts from, you know, being a jock to being a ladies man, to being uh, an income earner. But it's about your performance. And what guys tend to do, we tend to size one another up based upon performance uh, of all sorts and kinds. Can be athletic, can be financial, can be career, can be family, can be leadership, can be within the corporation. The third thing that guys do, they define their identity by their possessions. And there is something called conspicuous consumption that the sociologists will use, or also competitive consumption. And what this is that we spend money to buy things, not because we need them or they're necessarily even advantageous, but because they confer social status. Okay, so let me ask you this. If you're a man, is it better to drive a minivan or a truck? This is not a trick question, gentlemen, okay? <laughs> because it confers status. If you drive a minivan, that might intimate that you're a mini man. And so you go get a truck, okay? It confers status. Now, all, now what's gonna happen is, all the guys that drove minivans are gonna leave early so you don't see them get in their car. That's what we just did. But again, with the purchase, there is, there, there is a, there's an identity that comes with that, right? Okay, there is an exception. If you drive a minivan and have children, is that okay? Yes, if you don't, that's not okay. That's not okay. That's because the possession sort of establishes your identity. They just came out with the new uh, Hummer truck. I was waiting for this. Oh, I can't afford it. But if the Lord lays it on your heart, and you want to bless your pastor, I'll pray about it. Okay. So I thought a thousand horsepower, four wheel drive, crawler capacity, top and doors come off like a Jeep, but it's $112,000. $112,000. If you drive up in that, what are you saying? I'm rich and very insecure. That's what you're saying. <laughs> okay, your, your possessions communicate things, right? And so we, we spend money for things that sort of project an image or a status. We just do this. Okay, so does anyone here drive a Prius? We're gonna do this. I, I don't have really notes. I'm just kind of thinking out loud. Does anyone drive a, who drove a Prius here? Okay, you drove a Prius? I didn't drive it here. You didn't drive it here. Okay, all of a sudden you're getting defensive. That's amazing. Well, I have one, but I didn't drive it here. I mean, I wouldn't drive it to where God is because obviously it can't go in that direction. Okay, so, <laughs> so why do you drive a Prius? Your wife, okay, blamed her immediately. You know, I'm a victim. I love my wife. 
Jesus loves the church. She crucified him. I married her. I drive a Prius. It's my crucifixion. Okay, yes, sir. Somebody has to make up for all the trucks on the road. I thought it was a lager beard. It's an environmentalist beard. We're still glad to have you. Okay, so, so what happens with our possessions <laughs> uh, is that we buy things to confer status or to give some symbol. Now, true or false for a man, this can get you in a lot of debt, right? You can buy things you can't afford and we call that Scottsdale, okay? And, and so, but it's through possessions. This can be the clothes that we wear. This can also be the beauty of our spouse. It's, it's the trophies that we surround ourselves with. And then the third, so it could be a position, it could be performance, or it can be possessions. That's how we try and establish oftentimes an identity. And this issue of identity is really crucial and it comes under spiritual attack and demonic attack. And it starts all the way back in Genesis. Okay, so when God made us right there in Genesis one and two, he said that he would make us in his image and likeness. So we're made like him. And then Satan comes along and what he says is, if you will do something, you can be what? Like God. The first demonic attack was on identity. Because if you know who you are, you know what to do. And if you don't know who you are, you don't know what to do, right? Who you are precedes what you do. And so Satan comes and he says, here's what you need to do apart from God so you can become like God. True or false, they were already like God. God said, I made you in my likeness. Here's what I'm telling you. Our identity is received from God, not achieved by us. Okay? It's received by God, it's not achieved by us. It's not achieved by our position, our performance, or our possessions. It is received from God, not achieved by us. Now, as we've been driving in Romans, he's really hammered, Romans one, Romans two, Romans three, human sin, wrath of God, human sinfulness over and over and over. And what happens is sometimes we don't see that other people are sinners. If we don't see that they're sinners, we're disappointed in their behavior. And also we don't tell them about the savior because we forget they need to be forgiven and they need to get a new identity and a new nature. So for non-Christians, the primary identity is sinner. And here are some examples just briefly. Uh, Romans 3, 9 and 10, we looked at it and we're in, uh, we're in Romans 3 recently. All are under sin. That's domineering, controlling. Uh, if you're under a boss or you're under a government, right? You're under authority, it dominates and rules over you. That's what that language means. All are under sin as it is written. And he quotes the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. So everybody's a sinner. And then he says it as clearly as could possibly be, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Many of you do know that scripture. Over 300 times, the Bible refers to people as sinners and unrighteous. And we talked about total depravity. He hits this in the second half of Romans 3. Total depravity is that all of our person is infected and affected by sin. Our mind, our will, our emotions, our motives, None, none of us has a part of us that is altogether pure and clean. So if you're just like, well, I'm just gonna trust my mind. No, you, not all the thoughts you think are right. Amen? I mean, what I always say is, you know, don't believe everything you think. Some people are like, well, I'm just gonna trust my heart. Oh, don't do that. 
every guy with a neck tattoo in Vegas, married to a girl he just met, praying for hand sanitizer, started by following his heart, right? That's where he started. Your heart and your desire and your motives sometimes are just not pure. Your motives are not pure, our emotions are not pure. So what it means is that sin is infected and affected the totality of the person. But we talked about it's not utter depravity. Utter depravity is we're as bad as we could possibly be. Uh, we talked about in Romans two, he said that God gave us a conscience. The reason that we don't do worse things is there's a conscience that's like an emergency break that God has pulled in our soul. And it causes us to know that certain things are right and wrong. Even if we don't know God, we know some things are right and wrong. In Romans chapter five, he said death. The reason that some people stop doing bad things, they die. You drink too much, you die. You drink and drive, you die. All right, you pick a fight with the wrong guy, you die. And some people will, um, limit their behavior because of the risk of death. It, it becomes a variable. And then in Romans 13, he talks about government. I could get arrested, I could get sued, I could get you know, put in jail, I could get shot. And so these are limiting forces that though we are totally sinful, all of us is infected and affected, we're not as bad as we ultimately and totally could be because God has put some restraining factors around us that sort of keep us from being the worst case scenario, okay? Let me ask you this, does the identity, this is a deep theological discussion we're gonna have, does the identity of sinner primarily refer to a Christian? No, no it does not. The Bible speaks of sinner some 300 times, only possibly three times does it refer to a Christian as a sinner and those three are all debated. It's uncertain based upon context. Okay, question, I'll be clear on this. Do Christians sin? Yes. Okay, and if you say no, you're the worst sinner. Congratulations. You just got cuts in the front of the line, okay? We're all, we all do sin, but sin might explain some of what we do, but it does not define who we are. Okay, this is the difference. A Christian and a non-Christian have sin that explains what they do, but for the Christian, it is not what defines who they are. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see yourself, if you are a Christian, as God sees you. And I want you to see those in close relationship with you who are Christians, like your wife or kids, the way God sees them. Before I pivot to the next point, how many of you are dads? You got kids? Okay, here, where do your kids start? Here. They start as sinner, right? Have you noticed that? How many of you, your kids do things and nobody taught them. They just do horrible things and they figured it out themselves. It's because there's a sin nature within them. I always ask this question, what's the difference uh, between an angry child and a terrorist? Size, that's the only difference. <laughs> a, an angry child does damage and they would do jihad. They just lack the, they lack the size to get there. So if you're raising a kid, you need to have some measure of understanding, sympathy and empathy. They are a sinner, they have a sin nature until they get a, whole, a new nature through the Holy Spirit. Until they get that new nature, that sin nature is going to be the strongest nature. And so you, you don't worry as much about the behavior. Kids' behavior does matter. We don't want them to self-harm or hurt themselves. But the goal is not just to change the behavior, but to see the Holy Spirit change the nature. Okay, and once the nature changes, then the behavior changes. 
And I see this all the time with new parents. They're like, I don't know what's wrong with my kid. They're horrible. Oh, that's just a standard off the rack child. They're selfish. Uh, they're, they're violent. Um, they're crazy. I mean, if, if, if you were, if you grew up Let's say you went to college and, and you were in a fraternity with a bunch of guys who ran around in their underwear, screaming and yelling and throwing up, you're basically ready to be a dad. That's like your internship for what's gonna happen when you have the kids. They're gonna be in their underwear, running around screaming and yelling and throwing up, amen? Okay, I don't know why you didn't laugh. I thought that was clever, but anyways, okay. So sinner is primarily the non-Christian. Here's how Paul talks about the Christian. It's very different. Romans 1, six through seven, you are called to belong. That's the language of relationship, okay? You and your wife, you belong to each other. You and your kids, you belong together. This is the, the heartfelt language of relationship. Belong to Jesus Christ. What's the next word? Loved. If you're a Christian, sin may describe some of what you do, but it does not define who you are. God's loved us. God's, yeah, amen, brother. God's loved us. Loved by God and called to be saints. Called to be saints. This is a big thought. How many of you grew up Catholic? Okay, Catholic. See, when I grew up Catholic, which is why I'm wearing black, white collar, Father Mark, uh, you're absolved. All right, good to have you. So when I grew up in the Catholic church, they told us about the saints and the saints to me were like superheroes. They're like, oh, that's chastity, man. He never touched a woman. You know, like, that's amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm no superhero, you know I mean? So, but the, the, uh, here's poverty man. He, 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 he never ate. Oh, it's amazing. Here's prayer man. He prayed all day and night uh, while he was broke without a wife. Like, well, bonus round, you know? So uh, we, right? And they were like superheroes, these saints. These saints were like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. They're these superhumans. The Bible says that you're a, is saint. Let me unpack this for a moment. I, I put some notes together. Um, the first Catholic saints were honored because they were martyred. They died for their faith in Jesus. And then uh, Father James Martin summarizes sainthood in the Catholic church. He says, number one, be Catholic. So there, we're out. That didn't take long. That was easy. And then you got to die. So even if you get to be a saint, you don't get to really enjoy it because you got to die. You got to die. So it's not like you get a shirt and go on tour just, you gotta be dead. And then local devotion grows up around you. So you're Catholic, you die. And then people who knew you, they, they start having shrines and altars and ceremonies and honoring you. And then your life is investigated. So they send out a guy with a big hat and a clipboard and, he, and he's wearing a dress and he comes out to investigate your life. And then if, if he thinks you did a good job, he, he writes a file and then he sends it up to the Vatican. Now it goes to Rome. And then uh, that's number five. And then number six, then the local people start praying that a miracle happens in your honor and in your memory. So, you, so you're in heaven, they would say, but now you could do a miracle on earth to show that you're a saint. And so if a miracle happens, then seven, then they send out another guy, dress, bigger hat, bigger clipboard. He's, now we're going up the food chain. You can always tell because the bigger the hat, the bigger the guy. So he comes out with a bigger hat, wearing the dress and the clipboard, and he investigates the miraculous cure. If he believes that a miracle was done post-mortem in your name, then the Vatican declares you blessed. Now, you, now you're in, 
right? You're, you're, not, you're not in sainthood yet, uh, but you're on the draft board, okay? You're on the draft board to maybe be a saint. So then step nine, they pray for another miracle to be done from the other side on the earth by you in your name. And if another miracle happens, then they call you a saint. And now we can name schools after you. We can name churches after you. We can name retreat centers after you. We can make candles and sell them at the store with you on them, which is awesome. Uh, maybe you'll get a holiday. This is great. And maybe for Halloween, if you're really something, Catholic kids will dress up like you. Okay, and then you get to be a saint. Okay. Okay, is that how it works? Okay, what does he say here? Read it again. You, oh, that's crazy. You know who a saint is? You. Now that's crazy, right? I mean, look around the room, right? I mean, <laughs> you're like, these are the saints? Yeah, this is where it's by grace, amen? It's like, <laughs> it's, grace is cuts to the front of the line. You are saints. Now, how many of you right now probably aren't gonna put that on your LinkedIn page? I, uh, I sell pharmaceuticals and part-time, I'm a saint. <laughs> Not full-time, because I'm working on it, you know? But it's my side hustle, being a saint. <laughs> if we did name tags, how many of you guys wouldn't put saint over your name? Because we have a hard time, why do we have a hard time referring to ourselves as saints? It's, it seems unfitting, right? Especially if you know yourself, right? How many of you, you know yourself, you're like, yeah, I'm not a saint, for sure, I'm not. But God calls you a saint. So your identity is not achieved by you, it's received from him. He calls you a saint. What he does is he starts with hope for you and a future for you, okay? You who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you, how do you become a saint? Well, the love of God and the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's the only way you get to be a saint. And peace, God's not angry with you, he's for you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What we tend not to do well is to distinguish the identity of a Christian and a non-Christian because sometimes the activity is similar between a Christian and non-Christian, they both sin. The difference is not in the activity, but in the identity. God looks at this person and says, their identity is as sinner. They don't know my son, Jesus Christ. This person's identity is saint because not only has Jesus taken their sin, he's given them his righteousness. That's how you become a saint. Jesus takes your place on the cross and puts you in his place on the cross. He takes your sin, he gives you his righteousness, and then he declares you a saint. Positionally, you're in the same position as Jesus Christ, okay? So the language that he's gonna use over and over and over is this is that sainthood is for those who are in Christ. I'll give you a few examples here in Romans. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, he goes on to say uh, in Romans 3.24, he speaks of those who are in Christ Jesus. And then in addition, he goes on to speak in Romans 3.26 of those who are in Jesus, in Jesus. And what's really curious here is this is language 
that is completely unique to the Apostle Paul. Paul will use language like this literally hundreds of times, and he's gonna do it over and over in Romans, and I hope you're reading Romans. There's a free study guide to help you learn it on your way out. But as you're reading it, if you pay attention to this, you, start, you, you will start seeing it in Romans, in Christ, in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in the beloved. He's gonna use this language over and over and over in all of his letters. And the reason he does that is he's telling you what your identity is. You're in Christ. That's your position. And the Bible again is gonna call people sinners some 300 times. Three times there is a debate as to whether or not that is being used of believers. But over 200 times, over 200 times, the Bible speaks of Christians as saints, holy and righteous. So what that means is that ultimately God looks at you and he calls out who you're going to be when he's totally finished with you. God doesn't look at you and establish an identity for what you did in the past. Pervert, drunk, arrogant religious jerk, failed husband, you know, horrible dad, terminated employee. He doesn't define you in your identity by your past. He also doesn't define your identity in the present where you are today. He identifies you with your eternity and where he's gonna be when he's done with you. And what God wants you to see, he wants you as a son to pick your chin up and your eyes up and not to just look back. I mean, Paul says in Philippians, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward to the upward call that God has for me in Christ. And what he says is, yeah, there's some junk back there and there's even some junk right here, but there's some hope and there's a future for me. And so for men, if it is predicated upon our performance, our possession or our position, our identity is gonna be either about the past or the present. Ultimately, it needs to be about Jesus and the future. So here's what I wanna tell you. When you, it sounds funny right now as a man to say, I'm a saint. But positionally, you are a saint in Jesus Christ. You are fully holy, you are fully loved, you are fully forgiven, you are fully adopted, you are fully blessed, and you are fully the Lord's. And then ultimately you say, but that's not how I'm behaving. Your identity will start to change your activity and ultimately it ends up in your eternity. When God is done with you, gentlemen, there is going to be a perfect you forever. Whatever brokenness is in you will be fully healed. Whatever sinfulness is in you will be fully removed. Um, whatever arrogance is in you will be transformed into humility. Whatever fears you have will be replaced with faith. Whatever failures you have had will be overcome. That ultimately God has a destiny for you that the title that he gives you today is the person you will be forever one day. Okay. And what I want this to do is I want this to put encouragement in you and hope in you. That we start as sinner, 100%. Once you meet Jesus, you become a saint. Your identity changes, now your activity changes, and eventually your eternity changes. Okay. And so what we wanna do as men, we can do one of two things. We can either look back and just hammer guys for all the things that they have done wrong, or we can look forward and encourage guys to grow up to become the men that God has destined them to be. Okay, which one's better? This one, this one. Because this beats men down and this builds men up. 
Not only this, this determines how we see those who are in closest relationship with us. Okay, let me ask you a really hard question for you married guys. You ready? Just emotionally brace yourself. You ready? Is your wife also a saint? I was not very enthusiastic. I was like, yes. <laughs> a lot of second guessing in the room. They're like, oh, oh boy, I don't, yeah. I mean, I, I believe God can do a miracle <laughs> with someone like me, but I don't know, man. That's, that's a lot of miracle right there to get my girl. Okay, does, does God, if your wife is a Christian, does God see her also as a saint? Yes. Okay, so how do you need to see her as a saint? You need to call out the hope of her future. And let's just say as men, how many of us struggle with this, with our wives and kids, the closest relationships? If your kids know Jesus, are they a saint? Yeah. yeah. But if you're raising them, does it feel like it? <laughs> no. You're like, no, I'm raising the devil with my last name. I'm not raising a saint, okay? And so what we're not ignoring is sin in our life or someone else's life, but we are factoring in the work of Jesus and we're calling them up to who Jesus Christ has ultimately saved them to become, okay? This is the key in the heart of leadership. You can beat people down for what they were, or you can build people up to what God destines them to be. And so what Paul does in Romans, he's very clear about sin. I mean, three chapters, I mean, he has been very clear about sin, but now he's also going to transition about what it means to be a saint and to be righteous in Christ. And this is gonna culminate in Romans eight with the Holy Spirit and a new nature and a new power and, and a new life based upon a new relationship with God. I'll hit a few things in, uh, let me give an illustration, do a few things in closing and do a little bit of Q and A. Think of it like this. Uh, how many of you men have adopted a kid? Have you adopted a kid? Okay, thank you for doing so. A lot of adoptions, okay. So when you adopt a kid, you change their identity, true? Okay, how does this work? How do you change their identity? You literally rename them. Whatever their last name was, that's not what their last name is. God's a father, when he adopts us, he literally changes our name from sinner to saint. He literally renames us, okay? For you who are fathers and have adopted a child, does that child immediately start acting like the father wants them to act? <laughs> no. How many of you, as soon as the kid got a parent, that's when the rebellion really started. So all of a sudden their identity has changed, but their activity hasn't changed. If you meet a man who's adopted a child, oftentimes the child will have some bad habits. And just because they're adopted, those bad habits do not immediately change. So what does the dad do? He parents the child. What he says is, I start with relationship, I start with love, I start with grace. You are now mine, we're together, I change your identity, you get my last name, you're under my authority. The identity changes, and then the father in love through grace in the relationship starts to invest in that child so that their identity starts to become their activity. That they start to do who they now are. But there's a transition time and foster parents and adoptive parents will always tell you this. They're like, the hardest thing is getting this kid to be part of our family and abide by the rules and get into the rhythm and honor authority and, and start to live the new lifestyle. But the key is that the father starts with the blessing 
and then works through the relationship, okay? Otherwise, how horrible would it be if the dad did it reverse? If he came up to the kid and he said, your activity determines your identity. If you will produce and perform results over a course of time, I will evaluate your performance. And if I find it acceptable, then I will adopt you as my child. Many of you have that view of God. And this is largely and emotionally what Paul is arguing against in Romans 1 through 3. A works-based relationship with God is he's a dad who says, I will adopt you if your performance meets my standards. And then at the time that I find that your performance meets my standards, I will consider adopting you being your father and having a relationship. The way that God works in his relationship, he starts with a relationship. He says, I adopt you. I start with love and grace and mercy. It's what he talked about in Romans 1, 6 and 7. I start with relationship. You are called to belong. It's the language of relationship. So God says, you belong to me now. I give you love, I give you grace, and I change your identity. I literally change your name. Now that your identity changed, I'm gonna be your dad. Your activity is going to look similar, but over time, your dad's love and investment in your life, you're going to start to live. You're gonna to start to live as a member of this family and you're gonna carry forth the values of your father. Um, I, I know of one really beautiful family that adopted some kids and they would literally keep telling them, I'll just use the last name Smith, that wasn't their last name, but he would, the dad would literally say, you are a Smith now. You are a Smith now. You are a Smith now. That's not how we treat people. That's not how we do things. This is who you are. This is how we feel about you. You're a Smith now, you're a Smith now, you're a Smith now. After years of that, guess what the kid finally believed? I'm a Smith now. It's similar with us who are Christians. When God calls us saint, he's saying, you're a saint. You're like, no, I'm a rebellious son. You're a saint. Well, that's not how I'm behaving. You're a saint. And eventually it's like, okay, I need to start to have my activity match up with my identity. The problem is, is if you only see yourself as sinner, if you match up your identity with your activity, what are you gonna do? You're gonna sin. I'm a sinner, so I sin. No, I'm a saint. And so I wanna grow to overcome my sin. Because when God is done with me, when the father is done with me, when this adoption process is done for me, I'm not gonna be a sinner. I'm gonna be a saint, okay? And I'm gonna be perfect and holy and righteous. And right now that's imputed or reckoned or granted to me as a status in Christ, but ultimately it's gonna be reality and eternity in the kingdom of God, okay? I have more hope for you men than you probably have for yourself. I have more hope for your marriages than you probably have for yourself. I have more hope for your children than you probably have for your children. And I want you to be cognizant and aware and conscious of our sin. But the point in the Christian life is not just to stop sinning, but to start living as a saint. And sin is what keeps us away from the destiny that God has for us. So the goal is not just to be consumed with sin, but to repent of sin, get it out of the way so that we can pursue the destiny as saint that God has for us, okay? Because God, you men are not perfect, but if you're a Christian, you are new. And you know what? You are changing. And you know what? This process ends in perfection. 
So there's a 100% guaranteed success rate in eternity for all of God's sons to be perfect, holy, and righteous and live up to their identity as saints, okay? I wanna encourage you men, because oftentimes when we get together in men's groups, what we do, we just beat the hell out of each other over our sin. Now, I, I, I wanna repent of sin, but I wanna move on to saint. And we don't wanna just beat you up over your sin. We wanna build you up into your sainthood. So a couple of things I wrote down. Sin may explain some of your activity, but does not define your, your entire identity in Christ. Number two, you will sin some of the time, but you're a saint all of the time, okay? Your status as saint is constant. Your sin is intermittent. So sin is some of what you do, but saint is utterly who you are. Um, sin is some of what you do, but not the totality of who you are. Don't let your activity define your identity. Let Jesus' activity define your identity. It's not your failures, it's his perfection. It's not your unrighteousness, it's his righteousness. It's not your falling short, it's him following through. Um, there is a difference between having sin and being sin. Big difference. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and that is at the level of being, right? God has changed you at the fundamental lev level of nature. And then because you have a new identity as saint, you can have a new victory over sin. A sinner can't overcome sin, but a saint can. And then lastly, as a sinner, as I talked about, you do have a past, but as a saint, here's the really good news. You have a future. You have a future. As a sinner, we all have a past, but as a saint, we've all got a future. I want you to see God as father. The two most important things we first learn is who is God and who am I? I want you to see God as father. And I want you to see you as one that the father has adopted to belong to him, to receive love from him and grace from him, to literally be renamed by him, to be then reparented by him, to start to live up to the membership in the family that the identity calls you to. Does that make sense? So just close with this. Um, men who are Christians tend to think that the more God beats them up, the more they're paying God back for the bad things that they've done. And so even when we get together in men's meetings, it's like my job to get up, pull out a two by four and hammer you. And then you feel like I'm a really bad person and I took my beating, so God, we're even. What I would tell you is, Jesus took your beating, we're not here to beat you, we're here to bless you. Jesus took your beating, we're not here to beat you down, we're here to build you up. And our goal is not just to punish you for the ways that you have fallen short, uh, but to encourage you to follow through with who God has destined you to be. And God has greatness for you men. He just does. Let me speak that over you with a father's heart. God sees you as a son. God sees you as a saint. He knows your sin and failures. But how many of you as a dad were raising a son and in raising the son, you see greatness in him. You see potential in him. You see a future for him. And what you realize is you need to call that forth. And when he's foolish or rebellious, you need to correct that and get it out of the way so that son could walk into the destiny that he has for him. Amen?
And God is a father and he has a destiny for every single one of his sons. And he has greatness and goodness planned for you. And he has destiny that he's implanted in you. And I want you to focus more on that than anything else. And I want you to chase that more passionately than anything else. And I want you to know that God loves you, that God is pleased with you. And that if you are in Christ, God is there to help you. God is there to father you. God is there to bless you. And ultimately God is not going to finish his work on you until you're a perfect you. That's how committed your father is to you. Some of you have had men or fathers or coaches, they just gave up. The father never does. And I promise you this, every single one of his sons is declared righteous and will be made righteous perfectly forever in his sight. And I wanna encourage you guys in that future. Uh, we'll give you some time around uh, groups uh, in a moment. Do you primarily see God as angry, judge, or father, right? If you see yourself as sinner, you're gonna see God as angry judge. If you see God as father, you're gonna see yourself as someone who does have sin, but is re-identified as saint. So do you primarily see yourself as a sinner or a saint on that continuum? Most Christians would say what? Sinner. Once you meet Jesus, saint. It does change. In your closest relationships, are you more prone to point out sin or promote saint? If you think God's primary relationship with you is to point out all your sin and not promote your saint, then what are you gonna do in all your close relationships? Point out the sin and not promote the saint. And then lastly, how can we pray for you? And if you're new, some of you guys have never prayed in a group, we huddle up, sometimes like a football team, we pray together, okay? And I know for a lot of you guys, it's awkward. For the rest of you guys, it's really awkward. So we're all in it together, but we wanna be the guys who pray for one another. And the good news is we got more guys here tonight than any strip club in town, okay? So we're winning the war. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of places you can go to meet with guys, but there's not a lot of places you can go to pray with guys. We wanna be those guys, okay? Father God, thank you for an opportunity to open the word for some men that I have a tremendous love, appreciation and affection for. Hey God, my heart is for the men. And Lord, I believe if we get the men, we win the war. And if we lose the men, we lose the war. And God, I, I, I'm scared. We live in a day when everybody wants to get rid of men and replace them with government. A government is not a good husband. A government is not a good father. A, go a government is not a good pastor. A government is not a good leader. I think what we need is less government and more men who are like Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit and seeking to do good for the benefit of others. So Lord, I thank you for the sacred time that we get together every week. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage these men. I know that Satan has been accusing them. Would you encourage them? I know that Satan has been condemning them. Would you encourage them? I know that Satan has been um, frightening them. Would you encourage them? And Lord, to encourage is literally to pour courage into someone. Holy Spirit, would you pour courage into these men that they would live up to that new name, that family name, that new identity of what it means to be Christian and in Christ and the son of God. And Father, we thank you that we've been adopted into your family. We thank you that you're our dad. We thank you that you start with a relationship and we thank you that you're not gonna quit until we're perfect in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you.